Hear You'll be able to hear yeah, everything. Be- oh, I can hear myself now. Oh, that's scary. <laughs> Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. So, also, Premier Ortho, a division of Premier Healthcare, helping people living with injuries and chronic back, spine, or joint pain to get back on their feet. Premier Ortho, 333-1933, online at mypremierortho.com. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And today we're going to follow up on a show we did a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the debt ceiling crisis. Um, with one, we're going to follow that up with one that explores the effects of the downgrade in the nation's credit rating from AAA to AA+. Joining us in the studio are two Indiana economists, Gary Lemon of DePauw and Cecil Bohannon of Ball State. If you want to join the program, please phone us at 855-0811 or toll-free 877-285-9348. Or you can send your email or join the conversation online at wfiu.org slash noon edition. I suppose you covered some upbeat, lively, happy topic <laughs> the week I was gone, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we got, we got along with that. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Always, yeah. Uh, Mary Catherine's been in London. I think she created some rioting over there. <laughs> you know. You start one fire, you take one TV. I don't know what to say. All right. Well, thank you for being here, both of you, Gary from DePaul and Cecil from Ball State. Hope you don't mind if I use your first name. That's great. Good to be here. All right. Well, you know, we we um, had this program a couple of weeks ago, and we talked about you know what happens if the debt crisis uh, or the debt ceiling crisis doesn't get solved, and maybe they'll downgrade the the credit rating. And then, of course, there was an agreement. And the credit rating got downgraded anyway. Mm -hmm. So how significant is this downgrade? You know, I think it's more a symptom of what's going on than it is going to be a cause of further turmoil. It can't be a good thing. I mean, it's sort of a slap in the face of the United States and the credit worthiness (laughs) of the biggest nation on earth. But it wasn't completely unexpected. Remember, Standard & Poor's said that they were looking for $4 trillion in long-term deficit cuts, and that's not on the table now. That's not assured in any way. And so it seems to me it was a rather natural consequence. Uh, The ripples in the market, I thought, were very interesting because there's a huge irony here. What is it that made the market go down? The thing that made the market go down was supposedly this downgrade. And what was the downgrade in? U.S. government bonds. So everybody gets terrified. They start selling assets left and right. You've got this cash, and what do you go buy? You go buy U.S. government bonds. (laughs) Well, as I've always told my students, uh, you know, if you are more worried about the return of your money than the return on your money, what you do is you go to T-bills. And, I mean, essentially, T-bills now, you pay the government to hold your money because they're not keeping up with inflation. So by the time you you give them $1,000 and then you get it back four or five years from now, you're not going to be able to buy $1,000 worth of goods. You know, I see the downgrade as uh, much ado about nothing. Uh, It it really doesn't make any sense. And and, and the proof in the pudding is, what did investors do, right? Uh, they went to T-bills. And anytime you perceive that there's more risk uh, in a company, you make the interest rates go up, not down. So, um, uh, you know, it, it, from my perspective, there's there's two problems, and people are getting confused about these two problems. We have a short-run problem. The short-run problem is we're in a recession. and we're, Well, we're coming out of recession. We didn't bounce back as fast as we thought we should. and And that calls for more government expenditures and reducing taxes, right? Uh, so you don't worry about debt in this, in that case. But we have a long-term problem, and the long-term problem is we made commitments to people, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and those commitments are going to be significant five or six years from now. I'm part of the post-World War baby boomers, and everything I've done all my life has been crowded, right? I went to school, it was crowded. When I tried to get a job, it was crowded. And when I went to a nursing home, it's going to be crowded. It's going to be there. That's right. And so, you know, it's... and, and there's going to be, you know, when Social Security was put in, there were eight people working for every one 
uh, retired. And we're getting down to two to one now. So it's going to become very hard. And so there is a long run problem that we need to worry about. Yeah, I, I think so, too. I think, you, I, I think you're right on that, Gary. Uh, I think what we've got is if the government's overall debt is maybe 30 percent of GDP, we're in a small recession, et cetera, et cetera. If you borrow money, uh, what that is backed up by is future tax obligations the government's going to collect later. I mean, this is a very old proposition. David Ricardo made that point in the 1810s that all debt constitutes is delayed taxes. But if you're not very indebted and it's a fairly small amount, that delay is way in the future. Nobody's going to pay any attention to it. But where we're at now with approaching 100% of debt, uh, Debt as a ratio to our GDP, we're in a position where tomorrow, like you say, six or seven years from now, it's not 20, 30, 40 years from now. Mm -hmm. And so people are reacting, I think, in a predictable way to that long-term problem. The long term is getting a lot shorter. That's the point. <laughs> right. Well, I want to ask That's you. That's profound if you just stop right. and think about that. Yeah. My, my yeah. favorite, <laughs> it is, but it's true. Yeah. Right. My favorite line is a, Kay, a line from Keynes. Somebody asked him what's the difference between the short run and the long run. And he just said, in the long run, we're all dead. So, uh, <laughs> that's the, uh, my operational definition yeah, right. of yeah. short run. And, and you know the retort to that, yeah, Keynes is dead and we're the long run. <laughs> I, I think we're in for a wild ride today with our two guests, economist Gary Lemon of DePaul and economist Cecil Bohannon of Ball State. And we're talking about the uh, downgrading of the nation's credit rating from AAA to AA+. Um, Cecil Bohannon, I want to ask you a question. I've, we've had three economists on here in the last <laughs> – Two weeks. And they said seven things. <laughs> They've said, well, you know, all three of them have been consistent. All three that I, we've heard from on this topic have been consistent that in the times we're in now, this time of recession, the, the great debate about how, you know, we're going, we have to cut, cut, cut. There can be no, you know, no tax increases, no investment and in, no, no more government investment. All three of these people, this, uh, all three, Gary Lemon, John Mikesell, Todd Walker from IU all said – you know, that's balderdash. And this, this is the time where the government needs to be investing more. And I want to get your take on that. Well, I guess I'm more of a Keynesian skeptic than what my other three colleagues would be. I thought uh, you might be. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm not quite sure that the stimulus we had has done a whole lot for the economy or can do a whole lot for the economy. And there's several reasons for that. One's just the straightforward proposition that the economist Frederick Bastiat, French economist back in the 1840s, put out. If government spends, they've got to get those resources from somewhere. And we really don't know, indeed can't know, what the alternative use of those resources would have been. So it's not quite clear that you get the multiplier effect that many Keynesians think. Second, uh, in theory, I think Keynesian economics can work pretty well. I mean, I can certainly see the argument for it. I'm not a complete skeptic when it comes around to Keynesianism. But if you're stimulating in an area, and here's my example. Let's say you're going to build broadband in Wyoming, but the unemployment problem is auto workers in Ohio. Building broadband in Wyoming simply bids up wages there, perhaps gives a little overtime, but perhaps gets a lot of delays. And you don't end up having the impact that you want. If you really wanted to do Keynesian stimulus correctly, what you have to figure out is every little corner of the economy that needs stimulus. And that's not the way government works. And then the third point is, quite obviously, government doesn't make policy. Congress does not make policy by trying to figure out what the best way to distribute stimulus is. That's all done politically. We're still in Muncie, Indiana, getting the benefit of stimulus packages that were 15 years old. So it's very difficult to see how government could pull off stimulus correctly. And I think there's just a fundamental problem. You're not going to get that one-for-one one bang for the buck that a lot of people think you're going to get. Mm -hmm. Gary Lemon, any response to that? Well, I, I, I've drank the Kool-Aid. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, my we'd be in much worse shape if we didn't do the stimulus uh, that we just did. You know, and, and I think of the Great Depression, right? They kept trying to balance the budget and, you know, and the only way we get, really got out of the Great Depression is all of a sudden we, World War II and then we said, okay, we don't care. We got to spend our money. We're going to do it. We don't care about uh, the debt. I mean, clearly you got to do uh, stimulus in a smart way. You just can't just throw money out and, and uh, but, uh, you know, I, I've uh, you know, and, and if if you don't like the the uh, the government spending money, just cut taxes and let people. 
buy things, right? Uh, cut my taxes. You know, they're doing it uh, now with Social Security, right? There's a 2% reduction in your Social Security take this year, and they're talking about doing it next year. Well, that just puts money in people's pockets, right? And they're going out and they're going to go to uh, Walmart or uh, Kroger's and they're going to buy more stuff, and which just stimulates the economy. Uh, so... Um, but, Gary, it seems to me that consumption expenditures are made based <laughs> upon people's wealth perceptions. That was Milton Friedman's big point. I mean, a lot of people think Milton Friedman was this right-winger that talked about free markets all the time. He made his name by making the point that consumption decisions are based upon wealth. And what you had was an enormous flipping of people's wealth because of the real estate crisis in 2008. And that's naturally going to put a damper on consumption. And there's no way you're going to get back. I don't care how many tax rebates we give. It seems to me you're not going to get consumption uh, being the way it was in, let's say, 2005 to 2008. Well, I surely wouldn't argue that the uh, recession was not part of the uh, real estate bubble. I mean, you know, part of it, uh, you know, I went to, you know, I traveled to San Francisco and the Silicon Valley and, you know, you walk through the streets and people say, you know, that house is worth $4 million. And I think yeah. in Greencastle, it's probably a $150,000 house. And I go, well, you know, this doesn't make any sense to me, right? Mm-hmm. And I kept saying, don't buy, don't buy, don't buy, don't buy. And it kept going up 10, 15, 20% a year. And I go, well, there you go again. But uh, I mean, all bubbles in the end have to burst. Right. Uh, and, you know, we've, we've gone through several of them. And, you know, Miami was an, an area that the uh, bubble burst and uh, people were wiped out. Uh, so, uh, you know, people are trying to flip homes, buy them and sell them uh, a year later and make 30 percent. And they did it for a long time. But um, those you know, days, I think, are gone. It's interesting. The asset bubble of the Internet in the late 90s, early 2000s didn't generate near the economic damage and the economic downturn that the housing bubble did. Now, in retrospect, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. <laughs> it's easy to see that when the home constitutes the basic asset most Americans have, if you're sitting in a house that you pay 200000 for and you've got a $150,000 mortgage on it and someone tells you it's worth 300000 and you can borrow left and right, you're going to go buy that bins. You'll take that vacation. But when that house value drops... So you're now sitting in a house that you paid three fifty for, and you've got a $300,000 mortgage, and it's worth 250000 All that spending is just not going to go on the way it did in the past, and there's nothing you can do except sort of let that time itself through and hope there's enough economic growth to generate other levers of spending. I've got a follow-up for you, but I want to first give our, uh, give our listeners our phone numbers again, 855-0811 in Bloomington, 877-285-9348, and wfiu.org slash noon edition if you want to join us online. Um, I want – there was a word that you used in there about when people feel wealth, you said perceived wealth. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that seems to be a key point here because there might be some people – there are – I'm sure some people that are still very, very wealthy. But with everything going on and all the instability and, and the unknown future, that perception of wealth and how wealthy people are going to be seems to be a big issue. How, how do you respond to that? Well, I mean the dirty little secret of economics is that all wealth evaluations are based on perception. And they're all subjective. Why is a share of stock worth $30 a share? Well, we have nice theories of that, you know, that the expected future earnings of the corporation and the dividends that are going to be paid out are worth $30 a share. But it's worth $30 a share. I can cash it in, take my kids out to dinner. But overnight, that can change. So if something comes out in a company and ends up saying that those earnings are not something that's viable – or that whole market's going to collapse. Suddenly that $30 I was relying on is now worth $10. And guess what? My consumption changes. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's part of what's going on with all of this. And I, I, I'm not sure. I don't think we have a surefire way of being able to ginny up wealth mm-hmm. you know, just by manipulating perceptions. But it, it is sort of a dirty little secret of economics. Wealth constitutes one. It's highly based on perceptions. Gary, you mentioned that we're coming out of a recession, and I'm wondering what effect this downgrade is going to have on that. Do you think it's going to create a prolonging of this situation, or what are your thoughts? I'm basically an optimist. I've always been. Um, uh, you know, FDR once said the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, right? And and so the thing that scares me is not the downgrade. It, it really uh, – I'm a big fan of John Stewart and uh, – 
John Stewart uh, said, you know, what's the big deal? It's standard, which sounds like sort of average, and then there's poor. <laughs> and so we're all upset about uh, an organization's on average and, and below average. Uh, in, uh, and then, of course, he goes on and talks about uh, when they were doing triple A's on, uh, on uh, uh, you know, uh, debts, uh, securities. And so, it, it, you know, it's an organization uh, that uh, – you know, it's had its problems. So what worries me, I, st- I think it's not going to be a double-dip recession. Uh, I, but what I fear is people thinking that it is. And if consumers start pulling back and saying, you know, look, I'm worried about my job. I'm worried about this or I'm worried about that. I'm not going to buy the car. I'm not going to buy a new refrigerator. Then, then we could – hit a double dip. That's actually what I think is going to happen. I think that the, because of the just the general fear generated by this um, this credit rating and the downgrading is and people are like, "Ooh, wow, this isn't over yet. I better be, really be careful." I hope you're wrong. I but I said there's a 30% chance, I think, that you're right. And uh, then it's uh, we're in some for tough, some tough sledding. Um, well, and, and that, just to get, put that positive spin, that means a seventy percent chance that she's wrong. Right, right. <laughs> that, you know, that's about <laughs> typical for me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, economists, if we if we could have that percentage, we'd love it. No <laughs> kidding. Fifty one percent of the time as an economist, you're doing pretty well. You know, I I. I wrote down on my notes here uh, as we were going through gold. I mean, uh, <laughs> um, you know, you talked about uh, the, that uh, things are what people perceive uh, is their worth. And uh, I am not a gold bug. I, I, I don't own gold. I never would recommend anybody buying gold. And, of course, it's going up. I mean, and people go, well, you're, you're, look at it, man. That's where people go when it's safe. But I think this is a bubble. Uh, and it's going to burst. I, I don't know if it'll burst at seventeen hundred or twenty one hundred, but uh, you know, if uh, I, I, people who are buying gold now, uh, be careful. Yeah. Be careful. Well, I mean, what is it worth? I mean, all you're looking for is a greater fool. I will pay seventeen hundred dollars for this pencil I'm holding up. If I think there is a greater fool, it'll pay me twenty two hundred dollars a year later, and that's what gold is because there's no, there's very little intrinsic value to gold. Yeah, but in defense of Ron Paul and gold bugs everywhere, including my late grandfather, <laughs> what can you say? It's a five thousand year bubble. Well, people have been holding gold for years, <laughs> and of course the price goes up and down. Uh, all I know is the gold my grandfather ended up buying that I still hold. I will hold, and it's gone up and down in value, but I'll still, I'm still going to hold it. Because I don't think it's an unreasonable thing to have in one's portfolio oh, in small I, degrees. Dave, but, but, uh, you know, I'm not a financial advisor. Where, you are either, where is it? Like under it. your bed or what? I mean, we don't want somebody to come and knock them over the head tonight. I'm not going to tell you where it is. I'm not going to answer that. Okay, <laughs> I didn't expect you. All right. We have a phone call. Mike from Bloomington is calling. Mike? Uh, yes. Hi. Hi. Uh, good morning there. Or I say, good afternoon. I yes, guess. sir. Good early afternoon. Uh, yeah, a couple of things. Um because there would be a lot of things I'd, I'd really like to talk about, but uh, maybe just a couple of things. One thing concerning this, uh, the notion of, uh, of gold, which you just mentioned, uh, to the best of my knowledge, uh, there was a situation like after the Panic of 1873. If you held gold with the cost of living increase and everything, you would get, you would get back to what it was really worth in 1944. So it would take you about 70 years if you actually bought gold before the, before the Panic of 1873, from everything I've read. Uh, another thing concerning Keynes in general um, and concerning the so-called uh, the stimulus here, uh, I, I've studied Keynes pretty well, and I've talked to a lot of, uh, well, basically Republicans and right-wingers, and they don't understand uh, everything he was saying, and a lot of people don't understand everything he was saying. But I would like to talk to the stimulus team. Um, I look back at this, and two years ago, when they put the stimulus in, the projection, except for one person on the, on the, on the team who said it was going to be about 8.5% unemployment, they said by the summer of 2011, unemployment would be about 9, 9%. Uh, that's what Geithner said, and this was two years ago. So one thing I've talked to people about is that you can say, well, the wrong, it was the wrong program because... Oh, no. Oh, we lost Mike. Oh, oh no. Mike just disappeared. Right. Well, we'll try to get him back here in a minute. Yeah. I think we'll, Come on back, we'll Mike. Back. <laughs> All right. Well, 
We'll let, we'll let Mike get back on and, and go through that again. But I want to I want to ask a question about the about Standard and Poor's. I mean, it's not the only ratings agency. I mean, there's Moody's, and Fitch's, right? Fitch. Um, they they uh, they both still have the U.S. at a triple A bond rating, correct? Correct. Yeah. Are they under They're, pressure now to downgrade? Also, I don't know. Yeah. I, I really can't judge on that. I would suppose they have their internal standards. They have reasons to do that. Uh, one way or another. There's another small agency I heard that had downgraded earlier that uh, no one had heard of one way or another. But I'll make a point. I think Gary will agree with me on this. Ultimately, a rating agency can't go completely against the market. Uh And uh, what is it that ends up making the long-term rating? Um, It's going to be what investors are willing to buy and what they're willing to hold. So if the long-run 10-year U.S. government bonds are generating lower yields than, let's say, long-term French bonds, then I would suspect the market's saying U.S. government bonds are safer, which would imply a higher rating. Uh, but again, we'll see. I, I think it's a long-term kind of judgment that the, the credit folks do. Yeah. Well, we, also, if something's been downgraded, it can be upgraded. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I want to find out what, what it's going to take to do that. But first, Mike's back. So <laughs> okay. Hi, Mike. Right, if we could go back to Mike on the phone. Can we get Mike back? There. There, Mike. There. Hi, Mike. Mike. Yes, hi. Hi, Sorry we lost you. Yeah, the the only other thing I wanted to say is I said I I could talk about quite a bit, but uh, I was trying to explain the concept of the Keynesian uh, concept of unemployment insurance uh, to someone to realize that, for instance, as an example, um, if you put a dollar in unemployment insurance, you often get, we're talking about someone who's just straight unemployed, you often get like a dollar forty back into the economy, and the way it happens is that people who go on unemployment are not destitute. Maybe they've got a thousand, two thousand dollars in the bank or something like that, and they, and maybe the the wife tells the husband or whatever. I don't want to get too sexist on this, but you know, like, uh, okay, well, we need a new uh, stove or something like that. So basically, if you had no unemployment insurance, the people was well, we have to ha- we have to hold off. But since you're getting something on a, on a weekly basis, let's say, or a monthly basis for unemployment insurance, uh, then you say, okay, well, we have a little less money than we have right now, but yeah, we can, we can, we can put that, we can buy that stove. So what you've done is you put a dollar forty or a dollar sixty in for every dollar that you actually got from the government. And that's what Keynes realized that certain aspects of unemployment insurance actually could be stimulative. I guess that's. Uh, I don't need to say anything. Okay. All right, Mike. Thanks a lot. Sure. Reaction? Well, yes, my, my response again is best of the Bastiat response is where did that dollar come from? It came from somewhere, and you really don't know what that dollar would have been spent, how it would have spent had you not engaged in that particular fiscal action. I mean, the classic example he has is the the fallacy of the broken window. Uh, a kid breaks a window. Okay, that's good for the glazier. That multiplies through the economy. Gosh, let's all go crash each other's cars, <laughs> and we can generate an economic boom. Well, that's absurd. We recognize that. Now, I'm not completely throwing out, like I say, Keynesian analysis. I think you're in a position where you can have slack in an economy, and a little spending can do some good. But I'm very suspicious, very skeptical of one form of spending being better than another form of spending. And I'm skeptical of the efficacy of uh, long-run multipliers. I, I mean, what he was describing, what I understood Mike was describing, is the economy's slack, right? The unemployment's 10%. And so you keep saying, I don't know what else it would have done. The, the answer is, well, those people would have been unemployed. They're going to go to Walmart and buy a refrigerator, which then gets made, right? And, and, and so it's not – I mean, if the economy – is if the unemployment rate's three or four percent, and we're pushing up against capacity. Now, 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 there's trade-offs, right? You're gonna, okay, somebody grabs something. Well, somebody else can't grab it. But we've got slack in the economy. There are people unemployed. There, there, there are factories that but, are. Un- but we don't know where that slack is. And if you know the refrigerators bought in China, as it may well come from. Then how's that employ people in the United States? Well, I mean, somebody again, had to ship it to uh, Greencastle, and, and somebody at Walmart had to yeah. uh, haul it in and, but, but and you install know, it. One refrigerator is probably not going to lead to that much additional. <laughs> I mean, no, of course off. not, but yeah. uh, we're talking about hundreds of refrigerators. And, but and, again, once you there are there are millions of people unemployed, right? And getting uh, so I'm talking about well, one. Let me throw let me throw another kicker into this. Uh, what if you had people that were unemployed that were now running out of their unemployment insurance? 
uh, what might they end up doing? They may end up taking jobs that they previously would not have taken. And that would generate not only additional spending because they have an income source, it would also generate additional production. So again, to me, it's not a slam dunk. And you know as well as I do, Gary, that economists have, shall we say, differences of opinion about the size of the multiplier. Paul Krugman thinks it's infinitely high. Robert Barrow thinks it's zero. Most of us probably believe it's somewhere in between. I tend to be more on the Barrow side. Well, what do you, what do you think it is? I mean, it's not zero, you don't think, right? I, I think. Do you think it's zero? Pretty close to one. Oh, well, maybe <laughs> less than one. Okay. It's not going to well, do that much. And well, again, you never know. I mean, economics is not a science like uh, physics is or what chemistry is, where you can replicate an experiment. We can't know. There's no way to possibly know what would have happened had we not had the stimulus. All you have is your model versus my model. All right. Well, this is, I'm going to have to break this okay. off. This is, the, this is the Gary Lemon and Cecil Bohannon show you're listening to today. No, that's why you're here. It's fantastic. It's actually a subtitle, Noon Edition. Uh, we'll be right back after a short break. Okay. <laughs> this is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. You can take WFIU with you by downloading our podcast directly to your PC. Mac or MP3 player, programs such as Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, and short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game musical mini quiz, and play and opera reviews are all available on demand. Pick them up at WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? The WFIU news team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Catch the Friday feature just after 8.30 during Morning Edition, just before Noon Edition, and at 5.45 during All Things Considered. They're also archived on our website, WFIU.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And we are talking about the uh, the downgrade in the nation's credit rating from AAA to AA plus by Standard and Poor's. Uh, that's not all we're talking about. We're talking about a lot of things that have to do with the economy. Uh, with uh, two economists from Indiana, Gary Lemon of DePaul and Cecil Bohannon of Ball State, we're going to be joined uh, in a little bit on the phone by Butler University political scientist. David Mason. Uh, he's the author of The End of the American Century. Uh, if you want to join the program, call us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 or go to the website wfiu.org slash noon edition. We have three callers who are waiting to talk to us. Let's go first to Tom. Tom? Hello. Hi, Tom. Hi, Bob. Hi, Mary Catherine. Hi. Go, go right ahead. Hi. Mm-hmm. I've got a question, and this one's real estate, and it's about hopefully producing some jobs. I've, I've done a little bit of commercial building here in Bloomington and would like to do some more. Um, but when And I can get a loan. People say you can't get loans, you can't do this. I've never not been able to get a loan. I have a proven track record with more than one bank. And, I'm uh, and having I can go, trouble hearing this, getting some static. Oh, that's, that must be our other guess. Yeah. Okay, but I'm coming through okay. You're coming, You're coming through, through fine. Right? Okay, so I can get a loan with the bank. The problem is that it's the same rate for commercial that it was, you know, before 2008, Uh, whereas residential rates are at historical lows. I have a 3.5% loan on my house. Uh, The commercial rates have stayed the same, maybe even gone up a little bit. And when I talk to my bankers about it, they say, hey, we're too uncertain of the future. If we go down there, it locks us in and we're, we're hurt if it if interest rates go way high. And so I quite frankly don't fully understand it. Commercial rates work differently. But if you know you know, if they calculated it the way they used to, I would probably be getting a four or five percent mm-hmm. commercial rate. And residential rates lock for thirty years. Commercial only locks for three or five. So I guess what I'm saying is if the government could find some way to make the banks feel comfortable about lowering the commercial rates, they've all put a floor on it. And then there's about three buildings that I would build 
and there's probably a million Main Street people like me across the country that would also do that, you know, and maybe fix the rates for five or seven years and have lower rates. You would create tens of thousands of jobs. All and right. Whereas they're not manufacturing jobs, which are more permanent, they're, they're jobs. And I think we'll take anything we can get now. Mm-hmm. Okay, Tom, let's get some reaction here. Well, my, my first reaction million, is yes. it, 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 boy, Tom, what a great example I can use about the ineffectiveness of monetary policy. Because what monetary policy does is it lowers short-term rates for what are perceived to be, in effect, risk-free assets or other assets uh, the Federal Reserve will buy. You can't really bend that curve. And unfortunately, my opinion is that there was a real change in the assessment of risk after 2008, and uh, standards were tightened. And that's what you're observing. And uh, until those standards get to be loosened up, and I don't think there's, you know, I'm not sure that the government going in and guaranteeing those loans would be a good thing because that might muddy the waters as to what the real risks are one way or another. I empathize with your situation, and I certainly hope those rates will come down. Uh, but again, the interest rate constitutes a measurement of risk, and risk, at least perceived by the bankers, have gone up, and that, that's one of the things that puts the, uh, um, the quash on the economy. And it's interesting to see the Federal Reserve really can't do anything about that. Yeah, I mean, that, um, I mean the system's not perfect, right? I mean, I wish, Bob, there's some way. But, the, you know, the banks, are, are, they're, they're gun-shy right now. They're, they're scared. And um, uh, so I, I don't know the solution. Uh, I mean, obviously, the Fed has done everything they can, and essentially interest rates are zero uh, for short-term, uh, the perception of uh, not risk. But... Uh, uh, obviously, in your case, uh, in, in the case of other builders, uh, commercial uh, loans, they, uh, the banks are assessing, in, assessing the risk in a much different way. All right. Well, let's bring David. Yeah, let, let's bring uh, our other guest, David Mason, on to the program. David, are you there? Do we have David Mason? Yes, Hi. I'm here. Hey, thank you. Glad you, you could join us. David Mason is. Uh, but I can't hear you. You can't hear me. And now I can. Okay. He's a political scientist from Butler and the author of The End of the American Century. You know, we've been having a pretty robust conversation about the problems with the uh, economy here. Do you uh, Can you sort of give us a, a, your view of uh, why this is the end of the American century? I guess that's a big question, but... Yeah, I'm, I'm getting a lot of static on the phone and missing some of what you said. Um, yeah. But I'm also listening on the radio, so <laughs> let, me, um, let me go ahead and say something. All right, go, go, go ahead. I think if you turn your radio off, that would probably yeah. do it. It's off, but there's still, there's still static. Anyway, um, I, I did this book called The End of the American Century, which I published just about the time the financial system was collapsing in 2008, 2009. Um, and... I think this this whole business of the credit uh, rating now and and the American economy really needs to be viewed in a much bigger perspective. And this has been alluded to a little bit on the show, but um, in my view, what's happening to the American economy is really something that's long term and systemic and structural and international. And you can't simply view it in terms of traditional American economic analysis. Um, most of the, the growth in the American economy over the last 20 years has been built on debt. And we've created this economy that is essentially built on, this, on, uh, on sand, and which was fueled in large measure by um, money loaned to us by foreign governments, especially the Chinese. So they were loaning us money so we could buy their products. But there was very little actual growth in the American economy during this time. Uh, what used to, be, used to be manufacturing that was fueling American economic growth, in the last 20 years it was the financial sector. And that was based on debt. And as soon as that collapsed, the whole uh, underpinning of the American economy was eroded and I have trouble seeing where the recovery is going to come from. I mean, obviously, 
if we want to the economy to recover, we need to get people to spend more, as as people have talked about on this show. Um, but the level of personal and consumer debt is still at near record highs. Not just it's not just federal debt that's high. Um, and the unemployment rate remains at about 10 percent. There's been almost no movement on that. And it's very hard for me to see where this growth is going to come from. Um, and I think this is all part of a long-term and, as I said, systematic and structural decline in the United States. We're no longer the great power that we were at the height of the Cold War. And um, I, I don't think that's coming back. And not only that, but most other countries don't want us to be anymore. So this is all, it's, uh, these are all sort of interrelated things that I think make the, the, the question even more tricky and complicated than simply looking at the economic problems, which are complicated enough. Now, hopefully you can hear me now. The, um, y- you have said that this is going to require substantial adjustments for U.S. citizens and the leaders of the nation alike. Could you expand on that? I don't think we have a very good connection with uh, Professor Mason, so... Um, yeah, I heard that over the... I don't think we have a very good connection yep. with uh, Professor Mason, so... I heard that over the speaker, rather than the phone, um, about the adjustment for the American consumer. And I think we're seeing that already. Um, I mean, ever since, the, since 2008, um, economists have been predicting that we'll see this recovery in a year or two years or three years... But almost none of those predictions have turned out to be true. And this, the economy is still struggling. I think we're still in recession, and I don't think it's over yet. And I think this recent uh, business with the uh, trying to uh, raise the debt ceiling and the, the credit rating is just a symptom or an indication of that continuing underlying uh, weakness in the American economy. So if it doesn't grow again... It's not the end of the world. Um, you know, we can manage with that. It wouldn't hurt us to go back to a 1970s or 80s style standard of living. But it is going to be painful for a lot of people, particularly for the poor and the unemployed. Um, but I think it, all of us are going to be affected by this. And I think we're already seeing it happen. All right. I want to thank David Mason for joining us today from uh, Butler University, the author of The End of the American Century. And I I want to get uh, reactions from our panelists, but first we have to go to the phones. We've had, we have four people who have been waiting very patiently. I think Jim Bob's been waiting the longest, so let's go to Jim Bob. Hello, are you there? Hello. Yeah, go right ahead. Yeah, thank you. Uh, shifting gears just a little bit here, uh, I'm not sure how many years we've been under this Bush tax cut that was supposed to be temporary and simulate the economy, but in the interim we've had the, the uh, largest recession we've had in my lifetime, and I'm 71. Uh, how can people go on believing, the economists go on believing that that tax cut is, is doing this economy any good at all? All right, we'll, we'll get some answers for you. Thank you. Gary Lemon? Well, you know, as uh, Cecil has pointed out, uh, we need parallel universes, right? Uh, we need a universe where it didn't happen, where it did. Um, you know, I, I would argue that it, we'd be in worse shape uh, if we hadn't done it. Um, you know, part of the crisis, uh, you know, George Bush uh, was, you know, we got into this because we started a war, uh, two wars, and we also did uh, a um, uh, prescription drug benefit, and we said we're not going to pay for it, right? And, 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 and it's free. Well, there's no such thing as a free lunch out there. And, I mean, if you, you – we. We should have asked the American people uh, to say, hey, look, if we want a war, you're going to have to pay for it. If you want a prescription drug benefit, you're going to have to pay for it. So, um, you know, it's uh, that's why we're running such huge well, – part of the reason why we're running such huge deficits now. Yeah, and the other thing that I think happened during the Bush years, not only did you have the added fiscal burden of wars, you didn't have any constraint in the growth of federal spending mm-hmm. for discretionary spending or anything. 
So what you had was a situation where the United States was in surplus. And you remember this when they were talking about what's going to happen when government bonds go away because we have no government debt. That was the big problem that Alan Greenspan worried about in 1997. So you come on to that, and there's just sort of a freewheeling thing. We can do anything we want. We can add spending. We can cut taxes all at the same time. And it just doesn't work. You can't do it that way. Um, what can I say? I understand what the caller's saying, but I think it has to be understood not just the tax cuts, but also the corresponding spending and last, lack of overall fiscal discipline. <laughs> okay, let's go to Charlotte next. Charlotte? Thank you. Um, hi, Charlotte. Hi, how are you? Good. I'm, I'm, I'm concerned that it seems to me what we need <laughs> is jobs, right? And where are the jobs going to come from? Well, uh, that's, that's the big question. We hear uh, uh, this wonderful phrase, which reminds me of Dementors, called job creators. And the job creators are the people with wealth who are in a position, in fact, of creating jobs if they should wish to do so. And therefore, we are told we may not, uh, we may not increase taxes on them because, my God, then they wouldn't be job creators, except they aren't job creators. They aren't creating jobs, except perhaps overseas in manufacturing elsewhere, where, of course, it's perfectly logical that maybe they can make more money. But how a, can we get job creators, so-called job creators, to create jobs? Or how can, it seems to me, the only way we can really assure job creation is if the government creates some job, job programs that have worked in the past. I think it's a dilemma. Uh, the fact is we've turned our, our, we've turned our economy away from making things, and we've turned it towards just trading money back and forth, financial, uh, financial transactions. But how can we get job creators to create jobs, or who can do the job creation? Well, I'll show you my bias. Uh, I mean, I agree with you 100%. Um, um, what I would do, right, and this is just personal preference, uh, you know, I'm worried about our environment. I, I would create environmental jobs, green jobs. I, w- I want to do automobiles that uh, get uh, 50 to 60 miles an hour. I work on battery technology, solar cells. Uh, you know, those are my biases. I, you know, and there are ways we can create jobs, right? Uh, you know, I think of my uh, my uh, great grandfather, uh, who was a blacksmith. Right, the economy is going to change, and um, and I'm still an optimist. You know, the um, um, you know the, the American century is probably over in the sense that you know after World War II, we were the world, right? Uh, we were the world. The Western European, the Japanese economy was devastated. And so those days are never going to come back, right? I mean, uh, the growth rates are going to be other places. But, you know, uh, I am an optimist. I am, I believe in the American dream. And you give people incentives to uh, uh, create jobs, we can do it. Well, I just say the following. People ask where are the jobs going to come from. We never know where the jobs are going to come from. Capitalism, a market economy, the future is intrinsically unknown. Who would have imagined 40 years ago that a guy named Bill Gates, who was a Harvard dropout, and this guy whose name happens to be Stephen Jobs, would be one of the greatest job producers in the American economy? So I'm very suspicious, and this will be my biases, of the government trying to pick out particular sectors that they think can win and lose. I think that's – you're really skating on thin eyes. Because you may well be committing yourself to sectors that aren't going to be very prosperous. You don't know. This is going to surprise you, but I agree with you 100%. I don't want the government picking the technologies. I just want the incentives there and then let the entrepreneurs figure it out because I don't know where they are and nobody else does either. And I don't want uh, governments placing bets on things. Uh, Yeah, but you know, government legislation kind of gets sticky hands that way. It's very easy to uh, create a program to do that and then target it to your favorite campaign contributor, et cetera, et cetera. Again, I don't view the government as an effective or a very useful way of uh, expanding the job pool. I think it's going to have to be done in the private sector. What about infrastructure? All of our infrastructure yeah. seems to be crumbling. You know, why don't we take advantage of this opportunity and put people to work rebuilding our infrastructure? Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, as I drive around Indiana highways, it seems like that's exactly what we've been doing. And there are a lot of signs up there. This is from the American Recovery Act, one way or another. And I about uh, lost an axle on the way down here. I mean, there's a lot of work left to be done. The, the bridges look horrible. The uh, bridges are scary. You know, I mean, and once again, you know, I, 
I think we're not that far apart. If I were dictator, <laughs> because I'll never get this through Congress, uh, or even my mother would agree with me, I would raise the gasoline tax, and I'd use it for infrastructure. And then, you know, what? if gas is $6 a gallon, people are going to come up with ways of cars that get 50 to 60 miles a gallon, right? I mean... Uh, We've seen it before. Right. Well, in 1970, I, or I'm sorry, 1980, I bought a car that got 50 miles to the gallon. I mean, so we know how to do it. We know how to do it 31 years. You must have been ago. in great shape with all that pedaling. <laughs> it was a diesel rabbit, uh, which I bought here in Bloomington. Uh, <laughs> but it got 50 miles. It had a 10-gallon tank, and I could go 500 miles. We can do these things. But, you know, when gas is, is very cheap, uh, then people buy gas guzzlers. So, uh, you know, I, I would uh, – and then I would use the money to uh, fix bridges. Yeah. Yeah, Bill potholes. But, but you know, good and well, six dollar gallon gasoline would have other effects on the economy that would generate job degeneration in those sectors. So it's really hard, it seems to me, to be able to pull out a plan that would consistently work. And Adam Smith said it a long time ago. What is it that generates economic growth and prosperity? Easy taxes. I know my liberal friends don't like that, but easy taxes, peace, and a tolerable system of justice. And it seems to me we have the potential to do that. I'm actually on your side. I'm an optimist. I think those corporations that are sitting on big chunks of change, uh, at some point, are going to find things to grow and things to invest in. And uh, I think standards are going to get better for the small business people that are out there. What I envision, and I agree with you, Libby, I I don't think we're going into double dip. I think it's going to be a slow slog. And what I hope to see is that maybe after the 2012 election, there's at least certainty. I don't, you know, as an economist, I don't care if Republicans win or Democrats win, but there'll be enough certainty that the fiscal house can be put in enough order that we can really get some economic growth. All right, Charlotte, we're going to have to let you go. Nice Thanks. to hear your Thank voice, you. though, Charlotte. Thanks, Thanks for, for calling. calling. We, have, we have Tim, who's been waiting for quite a long time. Tim, go ahead. Uh, yes, I have a simple idea. Why don't we pass a law that you can't pump your own gas? And that would create perhaps seven or eight million jobs, and it may raise the price of gas a dime a gallon. So, in effect, the hidden tax we could blame it on the dirty rotten oil companies, but all those <laughs> all those employees would become taxpayers then instead of a tax burden, and that would give us the money to uh, rebuild bridges and infrastructure and stuff. And and I could get my windshield washed. Yeah, oil check. And it's a safety issue because people would not be leaving their vehicles running or talking on the cell phones. And we can also eliminate U-scans at checkouts because every time somebody goes through that, they're putting a cashier out of work. So I think that should be illegal. And when you go to McDonald's, leave your mess on the table. It creates a job for somebody to clean that table rather than carrying your debris to the trash yourself. All right. Well, let's see what the economists think of your idea. Well, the problem with that is, that, you know, I filled up my tank to come down here uh, from Muncie. And if I had to pay, let's say, 20 cents a gallon more on the 10 gallons of gas, that's what? So many dollars I don't spend somewhere else. So you may create the job at the filling station. I get the nice clean windshield, but I don't spend it somewhere else. So you're right back to, again, the problem of the fallacy of composition. If you pinpoint a place to create jobs... You have to get those funds from somewhere. And presumably at the first order, I would think that decreases the number of jobs in those other sectors by an amount that's equivalent at least. Tim, what do you think? Uh, Well, I agree. And he may have spent that money elsewhere, but he has given that money to an employee that will spend that money back into the economy and still creates the multiplier effect. Yeah, so but I don't. I'll hang, up, I'll hang up and listen to your response. All right. Yeah, my response is okay. We employ that, but then I don't take my kids out for ice cream. So the guy at Baskin Robbins is unemployed. So he doesn't. Not to mention the cow. Yeah. Right. Right. And so it's again hard to get that aggregate effect. All right. Well, let's go back to the phones. We have one more caller on the line. Steve is on the line. Steve. Yes, this may be an undergraduate question for the next lecture, lecture, and you may just have to wave it away as irrelevant. But in all of the discussion and debate about taxes, I rarely heard anybody talk about the extent to which anyone's wealth is genuinely the product of their own labor and the extent to which, I don't know if economists have actually measured this, it's actually the product of the society. I'm a teacher. Uh, I assume I would make far less if I were, say, in Zimbabwe. 
In other words, there are benefits that are not actually the product of my labor. The teacher in Zimbabwe would work as hard as I do or harder, but because of the culture itself, my work uh, has value added to it. And I wonder if anybody's calculated that. I know the Waltons, for example, and the Koch brothers are major funders of libertarian policies. Their wealth is inherited, and none of it would have been possible had it not been for this society that they want to contribute less to. I'll take my answer off the phone. Thanks. All right, Steve, thanks. Who wants Steve, to go first? Steve, you have to be very careful about where you choose to be born. That's the important thing to remember. But now, joking aside, you're right. We have a high level of productivity in the American economy and have for some time. And it's not just the people who generated those improvements in productivity that get the benefit from it. We all do. And that's a very powerful point to make one way or another. Um, I think there's a lot of discussion of that in economics. Some of it is what is it that leads to those accumulations of wealth? It's not just ingenuity. It's also a system that will work, mm-hmm. social capital, all kinds be of lucky. things. Mm-hmm. My dad used to say, I'd rather be lucky than good. And you're right. I mean, <laughs> you, you're, you, if I were born in Kenya uh, with the same brain, uh, I doubt if I had gotten a Ph.D. in economics. I, I just want to say, Steve, uh, I want to thank you for being a teacher. Uh, 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 you guys do a wonderful job, and uh, you know I have, you know, you, you talk about uh, whatever success I've have, I owe it to uh, teachers uh, for twelve years that that uh, put up with me uh, through school. So. Uh, thanks to all the teachers out there, K through 12. Okay. We only have about 30 seconds left, but I, Steve's question brought on another idea for me, and that is you know, the idea of the, the wage gap. You know, right. while people are making whatever they're making down and they're spending it, they're pumping their own gas, you've got people, you know, boards of directors, CEOs making, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. Just, you know, defend it or <laughs> criticize it in about 15 seconds. Are you going to be Steve Inskeep and cut me off? Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I am. Uh, I mean, this is a whole program, right? But right. The, the rich are getting richer and, and the poor are getting poorer. Let's have that program. Let's, well, do. let's do it. Yeah, okay. let's do it. Um, again, I'd also note that entertainers are getting richer, and I'd like to see what the gaps are there. Yeah. Uh, Baseball players. I, I think, yeah. uh, again, what is the cause of what appears to be increasing income inequality? I think it's a very interesting issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, my automatic sense is not to say, well, people that are getting rich, uh, they're somehow or they're doing right. something bad. I'm saying bully for them. How can we all get in on it? Right. Okay. And we are out of time. We're going to have an education show next week, so we'll get into teachers and all that. I want to thank uh, Gary Lemon and Cecil Bohannon for being here with us today. Also, Dave Mason, David Mason for joining us on the program. For Mary Catherine Carmichael, producer Rachel Lyon, and engineer Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.